Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Wealthy Podcast. And today we're so lucky to have Eliza Owen back, Young Australian of the Year Award winner. Um, Eliza, thank you for joining us on the show today. Everybody loves hearing from you. And it's an especially interesting time in the market with it being Freedom Day yesterday. We're all coming out of lockdown. Um, what's happening in your world? What are you seeing in the market? What's, what's the latest and greatest from CoreLogic? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Dom. It's great to be here again. Um, it is certainly an interesting time. It's been an extraordinary couple of weeks for numbers on the housing market, announcements around the housing market. And as you say, with restrictions easing across Sydney and soon Melbourne and the ACT, we've started to see a lot more transaction activity coming through, particularly in the new listing space. So if we look over the past four weeks, we've seen an increase in new advertised properties of about 27% at the national level. So it's been a really big, um, uh, I guess, listings have, have kind of sprung up around the delayed spring selling season. What's interesting, I think, is that through lockdowns across, um, you know, starting from June this year, consumer sentiment remained really elevated compared to what we saw in lockdowns of 2020. If you look at the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Sentiment Index, that's pretty much held above 100 the entire time we've been in lockdowns in 2021. And I think that's been really positive for the housing market um, because that consumer sentiment is related to transaction activity as well. So overall, I think Given lockdown conditions, sales and listings volumes didn't fall as badly as they did through extended lockdowns last year. And we're now seeing a really strong ramp up in listings now that restrictions have eased. Even the stuff around, you know, physical property inspections being allowed again across Melbourne has already made such a big difference to auction volumes and the clearance rate down there. It's, it's interesting. There's a lot happening in, in what you've just said there. I mean, sentiment remains high through all of the, the three months that we were you know, in the hard lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've just said that there's been a 27% increase in the number of listings. Um, that's been an, an important number for me to watch because during this time, obviously, we saw a massive decline in the amount of available properties online. And the one thing that's remained consistent is the amount of the speed of sales. Yeah. Um, across the board, what it's been about 34 odd days. So properties are coming on, selling within the month. And the one thing that I've been mindful of is if we do come out of lockdowns, we will, we anticipated an increase in the amount of supply, but then would the demand, you know, stay with supply? Would we see the same kind of growth that we have seen over the past sort of 12 months sustained for the, for the future 12 months? Yeah, that's a that's exactly what what we're sort of focusing on at the moment as well. So when we talk about listings increasing on the market, we're looking at those new listings, so the freshly advertised stock. The total amount of stock sitting on the market is still pretty low, so market conditions are still still fairly constrained. But what we're starting to see, you mentioned typical days on market, that seems to have bought bottomed out back in April, May, where it was taking around 21 days typically for a capital city property to sell. That's come up to about 30 days now. 
Um, monthly growth rates peaked back in March at an increase of 2.8% in the month. That's now slowed to about 1.5%. So all of these things kind of point to the market going from white hot to red hot. Uh, and I think that's only going to continue, especially compounded by some of what we're seeing in the, you know, banking regulation space, affordability constraints, um, and I think, yeah, just more, more sellers putting their property on the market as well. Um, we've seen a particular increase in listings across Melbourne. Uh, so Melbourne is sort of, I think, where you're seeing the slowdown in momentum uh, that, that's been kind of the fastest slowdown. Um, but what's interesting about that is that there's been a mix in the jump in listings across Melbourne. It's not just in the markets you might think where you'd have motivated investor sales across inner city unit markets. It's also areas like the Mornington Peninsula. Um, in Sydney, we've just seen a big jump in listings across the inner west. So those are quite, quite desirable owner-occupier markets as well, where there are going to be pockets of, of more relief, I would say, for some buyers. So there's two things I want to touch, uh, touch on there. One being the recent changes that have happened, happened with APRA and the fact that they're making it a little bit harder, not much harder, but I think it's more of a signal that there may be more to come. And I read some of your recent reporting. There are a number of ways that they, they can make changes or make it a little bit harder or, as they would say, um, stabilise a lending environment. Do you see much more coming in? And if you do, what changes do you anticipate? I think, um, really good question. I think it will depend on the impact of the current changes to lending that were announced last week. So at the moment, APRA's made this slight tweak to their serviceability buffer, where previously, if you're applying for a mortgage, you're tested at your ability to service that mortgage on a buffer of 2.5 percentage points above the product rate on offer. So that's been tweaked. So it's just gone up to three percentage points above the buffer. And for some borrowers, that won't make much of a difference at all because they might have already been uh, assessed on a relatively high floor rate that, that the banks are using as well. The banks have to use whatever's higher between their own floor rate and the 2.5%, now 3% buffer. So if any impact, it would probably have a bit more of an impact in the investment space where mortgage rates tend to be higher. But APRA believes on average, it would only limit borrower's capacity about um, 5% for the, for the typical borrower. Now, I think that would have some impact on the market. And I think what's interesting is that um, there's even been this call out to what's called an announcement effect, where investors see that the regulators are starting to intervene. They don't anticipate that capital growth is going to be quite as high as a result. And so you get investors kind of changing their decision-making around that as well, which just goes to show how sensitive the housing market is becoming to those kinds of macro prudential interventions and, and regulations. But I think the general consensus is that it could help to further slow down demand a little bit. It probably won't have that much of an impact. What the regulators will be looking at is other indicators of lending stability, like the portion of new mortgages that go out on a debt to income ratio of six or more, for example. That's one of the major ones they've flagged. And APRA did mention in its letter to lenders that if that area of lending didn't calm down and stabilize a bit, 
they would uh, potentially take more action. But by the sounds of things, that is a pretty complicated thing to do for them to to try and limit the portion of um, debt to income lending on six or more. So, yeah, I think for them that would be maybe more of a second last resort depending on the impacts of of, um, the changes they've recently introduced, which is set to take effect uh, end of this month, by the way. So that's that's interesting. It does sound like the parts of the market they're trying to hit the most are it's the investors. So even going for the debt to income ratio of six or more, that really is targeting investors and speculators and trying to take that additional heat exactly. out of the market. But what I've noticed and, and many have is the last time they really attacked, not attacked, but tried to regulate investors, um, there was a significant impact. And some of the least, latest reporting was you know, um, when was it, 20 sort of 17-ish yeah. roughly, when they put the, the lending limit restrictions on investor interest-only loans. Yeah. And what there was a jump in decrease in some markets, what, 10 to 20-odd percent. Yeah, so the limitation was announced in March 2017, and they said by September 2017, the portion of interest-only lending that goes out from, from your new lending has to be capped at 30%. And it did create more of a shock to the housing market, um, particularly where investors were highly concentrated because investors were much more likely to utilise interest-only loans at that time and probably still are. Um, So the result at the national level was a peak trough decline in values of about 8.5%. Across Sydney, the decline was about 14.5%. And as you say, some markets, some sub-markets saw more of an impact there as well. So this could also be a lesson learned from previous macroprudential changes where the risk of a housing market downturn could, um, you know, reduce some of the, the drivers of the economy that we've been seeing recently in the housing sector, where regulators are trying to make more subtle changes uh, than, than the dramatic changes that were seen in the previous cycle. And, you know, with all of that in mind, where are you seeing the opportunities? Like what's, you know, what you and I have been talking about one of your favourite cities, Launceston, for a while now. <laughs> um, aside from Launceston, which I'm interested <laughs> to hear about, are there any other sort of broad or interesting pieces of data that are sticking out to you that you think are early indicators of, you know, mass movements or something that is a, a run that we should be following or maybe counter-cyclical investing as we we tried to talk about last time? Mm. Well, counter-cyclical, I'd still say you're in a city apartment markets. They've been pretty subdued since the start of the pandemic. I can only imagine that that would change in the long term when we start to see more normalised flows of overseas migration. The only caveat there is who knows how long that will take and who knows if when we do see the return of international visitors, are they going to be going to cities or, or would they too prefer going to some of Australia's popular regions? Um, I think that in terms of some of the indicators that are, that are signalling ongoing strength, Um, I've been looking closely at the sales to new listings ratio. So this just tells us on average how many sales are occurring for each new listing added to the market. Kind of relates to that supply demand I was talking about earlier and where we're seeing more of an increase in new listings. 
Um, the sales to new listings ratio is much weaker across Melbourne, particularly Melbourne units, sitting uh, at about 0.9, which means there's 0.9 sales occurring for every new listing that's added to the market. But if you look at somewhere like Canberra, there's 1.8 sales occurring for every new listing added to the market. So almost two sales happening for every one new listing that's added, which says to me that there's still a lot of momentum to go in that market. Incomes there are relatively high. And of course, that sales to new listings ratio is also being um, uh, influenced by the fact that supply levels would have been quite low amid lockdown conditions as well. Um, ongoing strength in that ratio is also observed across um, Adelaide, which I've always thought of as a real kind of quiet achiever of the Australian housing market. It's often been very steady in its capital growth, very steady in its sales volumes. It's taken off in the current upswing. And I would say that there's probably a shortage in the delivery of a lot of new housing or, or a lag constraint in the delivery of new housing that is creating greater price pressures there as well. Um, so I think, but in terms of the growth trends that are specific to this cycle, it's still very much the coastal lifestyle markets, even as we do see a path out of lockdowns. Some of the best performance over the September quarter has been along the coastal markets of New South Wales, um, coastal markets of Victoria, the Mornington Peninsula, the Latrobe Gippsland, the, the coastal suburbs of that region, um, where oh, all of southeast Queensland's coastal <laughs> suburbs essentially. So, you know, there's tons of opportunity. I also think with southeast Queensland, you've had that, that added dynamic of internal migration to the Sunshine State. I mean, if you think about the state of affordability across Sydney right now, if you're a young family, maybe you've just had a baby and you're looking to buy a family-sized home, you're looking at $1.3 million for just the median house across Sydney. So, of course, areas like Brisbane, um, the, the coastal markets of New South Wales, um, they're going to look so much more appealing to, to establish your young family. And I think that's really something that's prompted a lot of that internal migration as well, of course, aided by more normalised remote work trends. You just said so much good stuff there, and I wish I'd oh, written thanks. all of it down. Um, I want to unpack a, a couple of things, one at a time. Mm -hmm. The first one that really stood out to me was the sales and new listings ratio. I love that as a statistic because it tells you so much about you know, the active, it's almost like the pulse on the market. Yeah. And what you said about Canberra, was it 1.8? So nearly 1.8. Yeah. Um, is that across all of the Canberra market apartments and houses? Because it I is feel like actually. Canberra's got two speeds. You've got houses which are very, very limited supply, but the Canberra market has had historically a lot of apartments come in. And that's when we saw the, the huge spread in house prices versus apartments. It's what, 70% difference in prices, if I yeah. remember correctly. It's huge. And you're right in that it traditionally has been a two-speed market. But what we're seeing now is that there has been a bit of a recovery in the unit sector. Um, same across Brisbane, actually, which, which is quite a surprise. This upswing has really created, I think, a spillover in demand two unit segments, um, which although they've been weaker, they are starting to show a bit of an upswing as well. 
And I think given the affordability constraints across the house segment, you're probably likely to see even more of a pivot to the unit sector um, where, where people can do that and where they're willing to um, adopt that kind of lifestyle. And I say that as well, where I feel like when affordability becomes more and more of an issue, um, there are two ways that people start to behave. They run to density or distance. Yeah. They either go further away from CBDs or they go into high-rise or, you know, certainly, you know, townhouses and smaller, more densely packed types of uh, properties. I'm surprised that, both surprised and kind of not, to hear that the Brisbane market is moving for units. I mean, it makes sense to me that the Brisbane market is running. The internal state data says that, yeah. you know, I think March to March this year, it was 40,000 odd people went to Brisbane. And that was the major winner of all the interstate migration, you know, That's the affordability great. and weather. Um, and it's good to hear that the apartments are starting to move because that's been the, the story that so many people have been sort of flouting for a while, waiting for the apartments to move and they've done nothing. Um, do you see that this Brisbane market movement is, a, is going to continue um, and, and do, or do you see it, you know, petering off? Is it just a short wind movement or, or will it, keep on performing as well as it has been. Yeah. So I guess I should say as well, it's it's um, that kind of whole southeast Queensland. So the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast have even outperformed Brisbane, you know, in terms of lifestyle alternative markets. Um, I think the good thing about this period for Southeast Queensland is that this has kind of kicked off a virtuous cycle. Once you start getting higher levels of migration, you start getting higher levels of economic demand because there's more people in the area. Once there's higher levels of economic demand, you need more labour to fulfil that. So your employment starts to rise and, um, you know, the increased amenity starts to be provided for, for that higher population as well until it gets to some kind of capacity where, you know, traffic congestion becomes an issue and, and things like that. Um, I think with the kind of newfound freedom around normalised work, assuming there isn't too much of a pullback from corporations in terms of return to workplace settings, um, that, that this could be a really good long-term thing for that market. Um, so I don't necessarily see it going... Um, I say I don't see it going backwards. Obviously, there will be a kind of downturn um, for this cycle eventually, but uh, I, I think net it's going to be a really positive long-term thing for that market. Okay. That's a great answer. I love that, the virtuous cycle. It's, it's something that people should think about a lot more often because it will hit a moment, but normally it hits its moment when affordability gets too high, and then that's when it's like, well, it's a good thing for you because now prices are too high. And I know that you're a busy lady and you've got plenty of demands in your day. So I'll round it up with this last question. Um, you mentioned something important that many investors and homeowners don't want to uh, admit to. The property market will drop at some point and there will be some negative price growth, if you will. Um, when do you foresee that happening? Let's, let's, let's sort of make a prediction that we can then go back to in a year, two years or three years, <laughs> depending on what you say. When do you think the market will slow? And, and rather than jumping straight to it, let's start with how, what do you think the next 12 months holds for us? Mm -hmm. But then also when do you think it'll slow down and maybe have that negative price growth? I think like the probably a pretty boring mainstream view, but the next 12 months would hold, um, I'd say, 
at this stage, continued growth, but the rate of growth would be much smaller. So you might go from, you know, 22, 23% over um, 2021. And then next year, that would look much lower, maybe uh, five or 6% growth over um, 2022. Um, just because affordability constraints are naturally starting to taper the cycle, and we're already seeing that in the growth rates. Um, ultimately, what's going to trigger the decline in prices is going to be a change in financial conditions. So whether it's an increase at, in the cash rate, which isn't expected until 23-24, or um, APRA does intervene with another, uh, you know, maybe a limitation on those debt-to-income ratios of six or more, um, it's those kinds of uh, factors that, that are going to change demand for credit and any change in demand for credit has an impact on housing demand. Okay, great answer. Um, I share your views. It'll be interesting to see that. The one thing or the one caveat in all that is I'm particularly interested to just see what happens when the borders open up. Mm. That's yeah. that's the one big thing that could <laughs> change everything, really. Yeah, I think it's time. I've really, I, I um, have shied away, I think, from that research question just because I'm like, what data do I look at? Where do I find that? Like, how do you even start tackling that question? But I think it's time. <laughs> well, once you've got the data, let us know. We'll have you back in the show in a heartbeat. I'll have a crack. But yeah, who knows? Um, you know, when it came to the onset of COVID, there was a big call and uh, fall in house prices of 10% uh, peak to trough. That never happened. So I think if I've learned anything through this period, it's just that you cannot tell the future. Those are kind of the best mainstream guesses of what can happen to the housing market over the next few years, but we'll just have to wait and see ultimately. Great. Eliza, thank you very much for your time on the show today. Congratulations again. Very well earned. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, young Australian of the Year Award. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, we look forward to having you in the show again. For all of you that are watching, listening, have questions for Eliza, let us know. If you disagree with any of our points of view, we'd like to hear that too. And um, have an amazing day. We'll catch you all on the next episode. Thanks, Eliza. Thanks, Tom.